Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner, for the week of March 4th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. A few weeks ago, I recounted how listener Gary Freeland had suggested a program on file sizes. With the proliferation of digital audio and digital video files, he wrote, perhaps you could address the subject of compressing these files so they can be sent via email or IM messages. A few weeks ago, I talked about some of the applications you might consider for digital pictures. This week, it's time for sound files. Just about any audio editor, whether you choose the free and open source Audacity program or the somewhat less than free Sony SoundForge program, it's going to be able to shrink an audio file. In working with sound, there are three primary variables that control the size. That's in addition to the actual file format. Different file formats create larger or smaller files because of the way they store data internally. But the three main things that you need to consider are sampling rate, bit depth, and the number of channels. First, might be a good idea to define some of the terms. The sampling rate is expressed as a frequency in hertz. It describes the number of samples per second used to store a sound. The more samples, the more accurate the sound is. The rates vary from 2 kilohertz to 192 kilohertz. The higher rates produce better fidelity, but they also mean the file size is going to be a lot larger. Bit depth is the second consideration. That's the number of bits used to represent a single sample. For example, 8 and 16 bits are common sample sizes. The bit depth can range, though, depending on the application and the sound card, from 8 to 64 bits. If you have a high bit depth, 64, for example, the file will have a lot less noise and will provide a much better dynamic range from very soft sounds to very loud sounds, but it will create a very large file. And the number of channels, well, that's one that just about everybody is familiar with. Applications may allow the user to record on dozens of tracks, such as you would record in a professional recording studio, but the resulting output file will typically be either monaural with just one channel or stereo with two channels left and right. Whatever the file size is for a mono recording, if you do that same recording in stereo, you will effectively double the size of the file. If your goal is the best possible fidelity for music, you're going to have a big file. If your goal is the smallest possible file, you're going to have to give up some of the quality. The trick is to find the settings that provide acceptable quality and the smallest possible file size. The first decision is fairly easy. The output file should be mono unless the stereo effect is important. TechBiter Worldwide podcast is recorded and rendered in mono. I made a couple of brief recordings that illustrate the differences made by sampling rate and bit depth. I recorded one at 8 kilohertz sampling rate with an 8-bit depth and another at the other end of the spectrum, 192 kilohertz sampling rate and 32-bit depth. I could include those files in this podcast, but doing so would change what you'd actually hear, because the higher quality 
file will be downsampled by the time you'd hear it on the podcast. So if you want to hear the difference between those two, you need to go to the website, www.techbiter.com. There you'll find recording sample number one and recording sample number two. And what's interesting about that is recording sample number one, the one at 8 kilohertz, 8 bits, produced a file size, the original file size, the one that I used to create the one you'll hear on the website. The original file size was 100 kilobytes. It's a pretty small file. The second sample, the one done at 192 kilohertz and 16 bits, well, that one created a file that was 8 megabytes, and those were both very short recordings, well under a minute. The sound card I use doesn't support the 2 kilohertz sampling rate at the low end, and at the high end, it doesn't support the 64-bit depth. The files that you hear on the website were both rendered in MP3 format using a 128-kilobit bit rate and a 48 kilohertz sampling frequency. You're probably wondering what those mean, so let's take a look at the export process, too. Exporting audio generally requires you to specify a bit rate and a sampling rate. The first is expressed in kilobits per second, the latter in kilohertz. The bit rate is the speed of the data stream, the average number of bits used in each second of audio. The most common bit rate for MP3 audio is 128 kilobits. That's generally considered to be CD quality. If you decrease that to 64 kilobits, then the recording is considered FM quality. Come down a little further, you get to AM quality, and eventually you get low enough, you have what's essentially telephone quality. Some people say they can hear the difference between 128 kilobits and 320 kilobits per second. I can't. Higher bit rates mean better audio. But streaming audio, even if the listener has a high-speed connection, doesn't work very well with high bit rates. The normal Technology Corner podcast in the past has been done at 32 kilobits per second with a 22 kilohertz sampling rate. However, as of this week, I'm reducing that a bit. The file size will be about half what it has been in the past, and the quality is almost identical. Because you can never get higher quality output than exists in the recorded original file, it's a good idea to record the highest reasonable quality. Now, by that, I don't mean recording everything at 320 kilobits per second, 64-bit depth. What I do mean is that if you think you're going to need CD quality at some point, then the recording parameters need to be at least 128 kilobits per second, 16-bit depth. For TechBiter Worldwide, I use 44.1 kilobits per second and 16 bits, and then reduce the rendered file to 32 kilobits per second at 22.05 kilohertz. Because of some of the tests that I conducted in creating this program, I decided that I will further reduce that rate to create smaller files. My goal is to make a podcast that will actually work on a relatively slow dial-up system without choking it. Again, if you want to hear the sample files, you'll need to listen to those on the website. There are several of them. The first is an example of 32 kilobits per second, 22.05 kilohertz sampling rate. File, it takes up about 250 kilobytes per minute. That's small enough to be handled by a high-speed connection. 
acceptable for faster dial-up connections, not good for low-speed dial-up connections. Another one I tried produced a file size of only 61 kilobytes. It's a very small file. But if you listen to it, you'll realize that the audio is unacceptable. It's rough by anybody's standards. The only reason I would ever use a file such as that is if the file size was the primary consideration. Then I tried 20 kilobits per second with an 11.025 kilohertz sampling rate. That file is about 37% smaller than the standard file that I use for TechBiter Worldwide. That's going to be my new standard. I think the quality is adequate. Let me know what you think. Some of the other samples you'll hear, 128 kilobits per second, 48 kilohertz sampling rate. That is overkill for the spoken word. Yes, it does sound better than any of the other files, but it's also nearly four times the size of the standard podcast file, more than six times the size of the new file format I'm using. I also included a file that is normalized. It's not any larger or any smaller. I included it simply to show the effect of normalizing a file. Normalization is a process that finds the highest peak, that's the loudest sound, in the entire file, then amplifies the entire file using the highest peak for that file's 100% modulation reference. There are lots of settings in the normalization process. I think the most important one is deciding whether to use peak level or root mean square of a file. Root mean square RMS is a measurement of the intensity of the sound over time, and the RMS power of sound corresponds to the loudness that a listener perceives when measured over small intervals. RMS sounds better to me, but I didn't like the default setting that the program provided me. It suggested normalizing to minus 10 dB, but the resulting file sounded distorted. I tried minus 12 dB, eventually settled on minus 15 dB. And if you want to know what a dB is, that's decibel, I checked with Sony Electronics for a definition. If you can understand it, congratulations. I've worked with sound for a lot of years. I never have quite come to terms with decibels. There are three other audio files included among the samples, and they're all variable bitrate files. Variable bitrate means that the program decides what the bitrate should be at any given moment and shifts up and down. Generally used for music, it will save space with music files. The result for the spoken word tends to be a very large, a needlessly large file. The samples show three different quality rates, and I can hear virtually no difference between any of them. But I mentioned that there are different kinds of formats. As with image file formats, some audio formats are lossy and some are not. MP3, for example, is a lossy format. That means it throws away some of the data in the process of saving the file. It should throw away data in an intelligent manner so that what it throws away is something you wouldn't hear. So if you're editing an audio file, your work file should be in the program's native format. You don't want to save in a lossy format, do some editing, and then save it again in a lossy format you run into the same kinds of problems that you run into if you do that with a photo file. Sony SoundForge, for example, uses FRG files. The generic Windows lossless audio format is WAVE, and Apple's standard file is AIFF. 
Then when it's time to output the file, you have a lot of choices. MP3 and MP4 are probably the two most popular. MP4 is what Apple calls AAC. There's also a format called Aug Vorbis. There's Real Media's RM format. Windows Media Player has WMA, and there are some others. Because just about every computer out there has an application already installed that will play MP3 files, and because podcasting seems to have standardized on that format, MP3 is what I use. Although you will find some older audio files on the TechBiter Worldwide website in Reels RM format. And if you're thinking that audio is kind of a complicated subject, yeah, you're right, it is. Sometime in the next few weeks, I'll put together a program on video. Warning, warning. The following section has nothing at all to do with technology. You probably know that I just recently got back from New York. I was attending a program put on by the Direct Marketing Association. I mentioned to the guy who was sitting beside me, who just happened to be from Cincinnati, that I was staying in Harlem and that the place I was staying with had cats. When I mentioned Harlem, he said, well, that wouldn't have been my first choice. And when I mentioned cats, he just wondered if they were around to give people something to kick at night. We didn't talk a lot after that. Uh, So some people don't care for cats, but I've lived with cats just about all of my life. I like them. I like having one or more lean on my feet, arms, shoulders, or sometimes even my head at night. So when I stayed at the Harlem Flophouse, I was happy because that means that I have, at least some nights, one cat, maybe more, who stick around. If I leave the door open at night, they can come and go, and I don't feel uncomfortable leaving the door open. And although Harlem is no longer exclusively black, it's not exactly white. Folks of my complexion are a distinct minority on the streets of Harlem and on the trains once you're north of 96th Street. Being white and from the Midwest, I've been in the majority the most of my life. Staying in Harlem gives me an opportunity to see things from a little different perspective. When I go home in the evenings, I'm usually the only honky on the D train after about 59th Street. Or, if I am riding the 2 or 3 train, the only one on the train after 72nd Street, I can walk from 125th to 135th on Malcolm X Boulevard, that's the extension of Lenox Avenue north of Central Park, and never see a white face. Some people glance at me with a kind of, what are you doing here, look. A few stare, most just ignore me, and that's the way it should be. It seems like just about every time I'm in Harlem, I think back to something that happened to me more than 30 years ago. I was attending a Nikon photography program. It was a class on color photography, and one of the instructors was from the Deep South, Alabama, I think. I thought I wouldn't like him. I thought that because he was from Alabama, and since he was from Alabama, he must most certainly be a racist. Well, in talking about color, this fellow was discussing problems involved in photographing light-colored white people standing next to dark-colored black people. And it was at that point he said something that I have remembered, word for word, for more than 30 years. They're the same color, he said, and you can prove that with a color densitometer. The difference is density. His point was that the pigment is the same, whether you're black or white, because color depends on pigment, The color is, therefore, the same. The difference is density.
It was a moment of epiphany for me. The man from Alabama may have been a racist, although I don't think he was. He certainly didn't sound like it in some of the other things he said. At the time, I didn't sound like a racist, didn't think that I was, but I probably was. Over the intervening 30 years, lots of things have changed. And as usual, I'm digressing, even in my digression from technology. I began by talking about why stay in Harlem. Well, Harlem is a lot quieter than Midtown. I used to stay in the Times Square area because it was convenient. But then I discovered the land north of Central Park North. The area is residential, it's quiet, it's easy to get to, and you get far more space. I've paid well over $100 for a room in Midtown and had that room be about the size of a walk-in closet. So in the past 10 years or so, I've stayed at three Harlem locations. You might wonder why three. Well, each of them is small, just two or three rooms, and as people like me stay there and then spread the word, getting a room becomes harder and harder. Uh, for example, in January, I wanted to book a room at the Harlem Flophouse. found it was unavailable, so I booked for February, but I still needed a location for January. That's when I found Harlem 144, stayed there for several days. And then in late February, I asked about booking bed and breakfast Mount Morris in May, found that I'd need to change my travel plans by a few days to fit the inn's schedule. So consider this TechBiter Worldwide's travel service. I have to give you a disclaimer or two, though. I am not a travel writer. I, I did work for the Ohio Bureau of Travel and Tourism, which is part of the Department of Economic and Community Development for a few years, a long time ago. And, of course, TechBiter Worldwide is normally a technology program, not a travel program. That being said, though, I'd like to share with you some information about three Harlem locations that I think you might like if you find yourself going to New York City. You'll find links to websites for two of the properties and at least an informational website about the third property on the website, my website. Bed and Breakfast Montmorris. Two suites available. One has a kitchenette. Both are private. Both have their own private bathroom. You stay a few blocks from the 116th Street subway station that handles the two and three trains. So getting to Midtown takes just a few minutes. You get breakfast at a bakery on the corner, and I can attest for the bakery, it's good. The Harlem Flophouse. Rooms here are large enough, but you do share a bathroom with guests on the same floor, and there are only two rooms per floor. This is an interesting place because of the renovation the owner has been doing over the years. And it's interesting because this is the place with the staff cats, and the cats are most attentive to your needs. The closest subway station has the A, B, C, and D lines, Travel time to Midtown on the D is just a few minutes because that's an express train from 125th all the way down to 59th. No breakfast is included here, though. The Harlem 144. This is another place where you'll share the bathroom and a kitchen with the other guests on the same floor. You'll find breakfast in the kitchen area in the morning. The fresh fruit cup is a pleasant surprise. Location is convenient to the 2 and 3 line at 116th Street. This is the property without a website, but there is a page on the web that describes it. You'll find the link on my website. So all this thinking about color got me to thinking, what is a racist anyway? And yes, this is not in any way, shape, or form a technology issue, but it's something that I felt was worth talking about.
I mentioned Katie Malua on a previous program, Russian by birth, Irish because her family moved to Ireland. For a young lady in her 20s, she has a remarkable voice. And a pretty good pen, too. In Spider's Web, on her 2005 CD called Piece by Piece, she sang these words that she had written. If a black man is racist, is it okay when it's the white man's racism that made him that way? Because the bullies, the victim, they say, by some sense, they're all the same. Because the line between wrong and right is the width of a thread from a spider's web. The piano keys are black and white, but they sound like a million colors in your mind. She sings it better than I say it. Back to technology, nerdly news. I used Goodbye Spam, I've written about it, but recently when I received a question about the application, I had to recommend using something other than Goodbye Spam. The question I got was this one. How do you buy Goodbye Spam? It asks what type of mailbox you have, has a drop-down menu listing some, but not CompuServe. I use CompuServe 7.0, get 300 to 400 spams a day. When I try to register for the 30-day trial, it rejects any selection I make from mailbox-type drop-down. It will not accept the application. I've emailed their support four times in the past ten days and have never had an answer. Goodbye Spam is a server-based application. You set it up to check your CompuServe email account, and then you set up your email program to check Goodbye Spam. Now, I like Goodbye Spam, and I like the guy who wrote it, but the service has had some reliability problems, and eventually I stopped using it. Actually, I did that probably six months ago or so. Support does tend to be slow sometimes. I'm now using a similar service called Spam Arrest, and I've been reasonably pleased with its reliability. Spam Arrest's documentation also seems to be a little better than what Goodbye Spam has provided, and a couple of times I've written to their support people, I've received a response pretty quickly. Using any of these programs, you can continue to send mail via your regular Internet service provider, or you can use Spam Arrest's server to send mail. I have my portable computer set up to send mail through the Spam Arrest server. I do that because sending email via a Wi-Fi connection can sometimes be more than a little tricky. Sending it through the Spam Arrest server, I can use a port other than 25, and that simplifies things greatly. Microsoft has four weeks to respond to a threat from the European Commission to fine the company many millions of euros because the company demands, they say, unreasonable royalties from rivals who request information from Microsoft about how to make their software function with Windows. The Commission has already fined Microsoft $655 million, that was in 2004, and $370 million last year for failure to comply. Microsoft has appealed both fines. The Commission charges that Microsoft has not cooperated. Microsoft says it's been trying to cooperate. Microsoft General Counsel Brad Smith says the company has been fair and reasonable in setting prices. But the European Commission says the new fines could be as much as $3.9 million per day, and that some of the fines could be retroactive to December of 2005. The European Committee for Interoperable Systems, which, oh, by the way, includes IBM, Oracle, and Sun Microsystems, not European companies, by the way, says it is pleased by the Commission's position.
as well they should be. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of March 4th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Do check out the website this week with the various audio samples, www.techbiter.com, T-E-C-H-B-Y-T-E-R. You can also send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.